0: Hi, I'm Gordon. And I'm Fiona. We're from Gate Church International in Dundee, Scotland, and we'd like to welcome you to this week's podcast. Our goal here is growing people to bring Christ into our communities and to see you get connected with God as people and as purpose. We hope this message inspires you in your faith journey. Thank you. What we're going to look at today is the transfiguration. But we're going to start, you read about it, well, various of the Gospels, we're going to look at it in Mark's Gospel, it's in chapter 9, we're going to go towards the end of chapter 8, because Christianity should be easy, shouldn't it? All you need to do is hear the Word of God, believe the Word of God, do the Word of God sorted. That's it, that's all we've got to do, but it's not that simple, is it? It's a darn sight more difficult than that. So in the transfiguration, Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain, and he appeared in brilliant white light, and Moses and Elijah appeared with him, and then the voice of God came from a cloud to speak to them. We're going to look at why, uh, well, what was going on in the minds of Peter, James, and John just before that happened. What was going on in their hearts and minds? And why did God choose that point in time to make this event happen? It's the only time it's happened. Why did He choose then? So let's go to Mark eight twenty nine. And also just a general thing on uh, understanding the Bible. The chapter numbers and the verse numbers were not put there when the Bible was written. The chapter numbers started to appear about the 13th century. The verse numbers didn't appear until about the 15th century. They're not there, they're not part of the original text. Not part of what people like Mark or Paul or whoever wrote in the Bible. And if you want to understand what's going on in one section, it's often very helpful to look at what was going on before. And in this case, we're going to see that chapter 9 starts in the wrong place, but we'll come to that bit. Somebody to look forward to. Chapter 9's in the wrong place. But anyway, let's look at this bit. Jesus, this is, says, what about you, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the Savior of Israel. And in Matthew's version, it says that Jesus then said to him, blessed are you, Peter, for this was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. Can you imagine how Peter felt? Well, first of all, one, he's actually realized that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And then this Messiah has said to him, You're blessed, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. So Peter must have been feeling pretty good at this point. But let me go on to f- verse 31. It says, Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, after three, and after three days rise again. Jesus spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked to the disciples, he rebuked Peter said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in, in mind the things of God, but the things of men. What a come down for Peter. One minute you've been told you're blessed. God has revealed things to you. And the next minute he's been told by this same Messiah You're speaking the words of the devil. Can you imagine how Peter felt? And and it's uh, so easy to do that, isn't it? We have one point where we do actually sometimes get things right. Like I got my choice of clothes on Friday night right. (laughs) Sometimes it happens. But then, as I often do with my wife as well, I'll I'll make some great big boo-boo the next day. We make a mistake and we can fall flat on our face immediately afterwards. But understand what's going on with Peter as well. He said that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who's going to save Israel. And then Jesus starts telling him, I'm going to be handed over to men. They're going to beat me. They're going to make me suffer, and I'm going to be killed. Now, I know he mentions the resurrection as well, but the... Before the resurrection happened, any mention Jesus made of it just went right over the heads of the disciples. They had no idea what he was on about when he talked about uh, the resurrection until it actually happened. But this Messiah is I'm going to be killed. Are you thinking, Peter thinking, how on earth can you be the Messiah if you're going to be killed? If you're going to be betrayed into the hands of men, handed over to the chief priests, to be beaten, and then killed. How does that, how do these two things fit together? You can understand the conflict, the the confusion that's going on in his mind. Let's go to the next bit. Jesus then makes things even worse. Remember Peter And the other disciples had left homes to follow Jesus. They made a major sacrifice to follow Jesus. And then this man which they've committed their lives to tells them he's going to be killed. Says then Jesus called you you might think at this point Jesus will try and soften things a little. Make it a little more palatable. But Jesus doesn't do that. He makes it even worse. It says, Jesus then called the crowds to him along with his disciples. I said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? So Jesus hasn't just said he's going to suffer. He said to these disciples, you're going to suffer. You've got to be prepared to suffer as well. Talks there about taking up their cross. And we don't appreciate just how much that meant. Because crucifixion, was designed by the Romans to be the most humiliating and painful death they could imagine, they could think of. It was designed to utterly humiliate the people who were being crucified and to say to everyone else, "Look, this is what happens if you defy the Roman Empire. And they, part of that process, they were made to carry the cross The cross beam on the cross, they were made to carry that through the streets on the way to the place of crucifixion. And the people Jesus was speaking to would have seen that happen many times. And when he says, you've got to be prepared to carry your cross, they knew what it meant. You've got to be prepared to be utterly rejected, utterly humiliated, and possibly killed if you want to follow me. Peter, James, and John had done this. They had chosen to follow Jesus. They had left homes. And now this Jesus is telling them, first, he's going to die. And they've got to be prepared to die. But there's other things mixed in there as well. It seems crazy. Why would you follow someone? When they're telling you they're going to die and you've got to be prepared to die with them. He says, if you want to save your own life, you will lose it. Actually, it's the most sensible thing. Following Jesus is the most sensible thing you can do. We have an inbuilt desire, a natural instinct to want to save our own life we will, when we find ourselves in situations which are getting extremely uncomfortable, or much worse, we love to find a way out. We want to withdraw from the situation. And Jesus says, if you do that, if you try to save your own life, you'll lose it. Then he says, if, but if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. So the confusion in the disciples is mounting. I mean, Jesus said these things. How on earth do you make sense of it? And then if we go on to verse 37 and 38. Or oh, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this Adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He appears, when He comes with His Father's glory and with the holy angels. Look at those words. If you're ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, and those words apply to us in this generation too because those words of an adulterous and sinful generation are just as applicable today as they were 2,000 years ago. It says, if you are ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Do we want Jesus to be ashamed of us, or do we want him to be proud of us? But then again, put yourself in the position, the disciples, they're hearing this. But then again, there's this stuff mixed in with it. He's talked about this, about not being ashamed of his words. He's talked about the suffering. And he said, when I appear in my Father's glory, what's he going on about now? He's going to be killed, he's going to be handed over and then killed, Crucified. Then he's going to appear in his Father's glory. And he's going to return with myriads of angels. How can you mix these two things together? How can you fit them together? And then we go to chapter 9, verse 1. Though It should actually be chapter 8, verse 39. If I don't really get to heaven, whether I'm right or not. And this verse has caused people trouble. Because Jesus said... Truly, I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God has come with power, and this has caused problems. So, what on earth how did this work out? Some people thought, well, it's talking about the second coming, but the people all died before Jesus. Obviously, all died before Jesus. Jesus didn't come back yet. They didn't see Jesus come back. Other ones have said it's referring to the transfiguration, which we're actually going to get to in a minute. Others have said it refers to the resurrection. Others have said it refers to the coming of the Holy Spirit. But let's look at what has just been happening, what Jesus has just been talking about. He's been talking right, quite clear that he is the Messiah. He's going to come in his Father's glory. He's going to come with myriads of angels. He's got all power and authority. He's also been talking about he's going to be handed over to the chief priests. He's going to be suffered. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be nailed to a cross. And humanly speaking, they seem to be poles apart. How can you put those two things together? And what Jesus is saying here is this. You will see that through this suffering, the kingdom of God is coming with power. You see, what happened on the cross, there's various things, but emphasise the humiliation. Jesus was humiliating the cross, and he was. Most of the pictures you see, if you see pictures of the crucifixion, Jesus has a loincloth around him. He was almost certainly completely naked because they designed crucifixion, their aim was utter humiliation of the person being crucified. It involved tremendous suffering. It was one of the most horrific means of death invented by man. But it was also an act of authority. It was an act of power. Because on the cross... Jesus defeated sin, he defeated death, and he defeated the devil. And Jesus saying to them, look, you think this is going to the cross and all this suffering is crazy. You think it's completely at odds with my being the Messiah, with the kingdom of God coming with power. You will soon see that it's absolutely central to the kingdom of God in with power. Let me read you, it's not going to appear on the screen, from uh, Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 to 15. And there Paul says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross was an act of power. We, the whole human race, were in a mess because of sin. Because there was a sentence of death against us because of sin. Jesus went to the cross and took all of that sentence of death upon himself. All the punishment that every little bit of our sin deserves, Jesus took upon himself on that cross. And sin was defeated. And death was defeated. The only reason death has any power over us is because of sin, because of our sin against God. Jesus canceled out that judgment against us. So as Jesus says elsewhere, "Even though we die, we will live forever." You know, one day we're going to be raised from the dead. You can get people to sell experience holidays, or experience, you get experience gifts. For things. Well, nothing's going to outweigh that experience. You know? We don't need to fear death anymore. Because one day, if we die before Jesus comes back, we're going to be raised again. And we're going to have a new body. And he defeated the devil. Because of sin, Satan had power over us. Because of Jesus, we have power over him. You see, now, I don't want you to get any nonsense ideas. I've heard... Some of them say, you know, it says in Peter that the devil prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And I've heard some preachers say, the, the, uh, the devil's got no teeth. That is utter nonsense. It's a cheap preaching point and nothing else. You, all you need to do is look at history, look at the world, look at the news, look at life. The devil's got teeth. I don't want any f- cheap, airy fairy nonsense. But James says, resist the devil and he will flee. We need to understand that as well. There is a, de- a dark spiritual battle goes on in the nation, in our own lives. The devil is the one who needs to flee. And in Revelation 12, it says, they overcame him. The devil waged war against God's people, but it says, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, And the word of their testimony. We need to be utterly realistic about the nature of the battle, but we need to be even more convinced and realistic and joyous that we know the outcome, that we know which side we are on. And all this was achieved not despite the suffering of Jesus, but through the suffering of Jesus. But it doesn't just apply to Jesus. Because Jesus later on is talking to his disciples about, about the fall of Jerusalem and about the second coming in Mark 13. And he says to them at one point, his disciples, You're going to be handed over to councils, to synagogues and councils. But don't fear. Because God will give you the words to say, to bear testimony to me. You see, when men have. Ref- calling up the disciples. They thought they were in charge. They thought they were getting to do what they wanted to do. But what was actually happening was God was putting his people in front of these rulers so that they would hear the word of God. And the same thing happens to, is happening today all over the world. If you look at the prayer uh, diaries of things like, uh, organizations like Open Doors, there are Christians throughout the world, Christians this very day, who are facing very severe persecution. But these Christians. Many of them. You read about right, Their love for Jesus. In the midst. Of these most difficult circumstances. That no matter what the world throws at them. No matter what the devil throws at them. No matter what men and women throw at them. They continue to trust and rejoice in Jesus. And they are overcoming the devil. So, so let's get on to, actually on to the transfiguration. Let's give that. So where are the disciples now? They've heard all this stuff here. Let's just read 9 verse 2. After six days... These disciples would have been utterly conflicted. We all know what it's like to be conflicted. You know, there's when you you just can't make sense of things. You don't know what, what what direction to go in. Okay, if the conflictedness is because of sin, the answer is very simple. We need to repent. We don't need a psychoanalysis, we don't need a theological analysis, we don't need counseling, we need to repent. Dead simple. But there are times in our lives when we haven't got a rebellious spirit. We've not just got a hard heart. But we just can't make sense of what to do. And these disciples here, they follow Jesus. They want to follow Jesus. They know He's the Messiah. And yet you've got all this talk of suffering, both for Jesus and for them. How does it all work out? And they cannot resolve it. And we all encounter times in our lives when we cannot work out how things fit together. You know the best thing to do in those situations? Let Jesus resolve it. If we try to resolve it ourselves, we'll usually get it wrong. You see, what we like, we like to take half of the truth. You see, you've got, since you've got both halves in all this stuff, you've got one half, you've got Jesus the Messiah, Jesus our Savior, and all, all the rest of it, that's absolutely fantastic. And then you've got the other side where you've got Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus is going to die, you're going to, you've got to suffer with Jesus. And we'll so easily go for one half or the other. Either you'll go on one side to uh, prosperity gospel, so-called. Oh, you're going to be wonderful all the time, Jesus is going to bless you more and more, you believe enough, you have got a bigger car, a bigger house, say a bigger wife, you might not want a bigger wife, a slimmer wife. It have got this prosperity gospel, it's utter garbage. It's no gospel at all. And then you go to the other extreme, or you're not allowed to enjoy yourself. Better not smile too much if you want to please Jesus. The, most, the more you suffer, the better it is for you. We'll choose half a truth. If all you've got is half a truth, you've got a lie. Let God resolve it. And this is what he's doing here. These disciples are utterly confused in their minds and in their hearts as well, no doubt. And then Jesus takes them up a mountain, three of them, Peter, James, and John. And they're all alone. And there Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anything you could ever see. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus so, first of all, God gives them an experience. Gives them an experience of His glory, of Jesus' glory. You know, some people believe, otherwise very sensible Christians, believe that miracles have stopped, or gifts of the Spirit have stopped. We need more miracles today. We need more of that. And God can give me as many religious experiences as He likes. I'll take them all. Because sometimes there are things that we can work out with our minds. But other times we just need to bathe in the presence of God. Just be surrounded by His glory. Just a a touch or a sense of His presence. Sometimes we need that some of the times. And God gives them that here, these three disciples, that. And Jesus is miraculously transfigured. But there's also the theological bit as well. Elijah and Moses appear. Now, why Elijah and Moses? Why those two? Because is because they, uh, in a sense, they encapsulate the whole of the Old Testament. Two main parts of the Old Testament. You've got the law. Moses gave the Ten Commandments, and then all the rest of the stuff which you read about in the first five books of the Old Testament. And then you read about all the disaster of Israel failing to follow the law and suffering all sorts of stuff because of it. But you've got Moses representing that part. Elijah is a prophet. Another part, major part of the Old Testament are the prophets which again, there's two main aspects to them. One is they're castigating Israel for their persistent disobedience. But then there's all these promises. Amazing promises of blessing. Amazing promises of peace. Coming upon Israel, but not just Israel, coming upon the whole world. And the reason Elijah and Moses appeared is because God's saying to them, All this that Jesus has been speaking about is what all the Old Testament was pointing forward to. If you read Paul's letters, you'll see that he says, "Look, all the Abraham and all the others—they were—it was all pointing forward to Jesus." And deep in the Word, we've been looking at the Book of Hebrews, and that's what that's all about. Saying you, 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 look. Some of you are looking at the Old Testament. Oh, that's it. That's not it. It was pointing forward to it. It was pointing forward to Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Let's go on to the next bit. It says Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters: one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. Because they were so frightened. And then come to this bit. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Now most of us won't appreciate the full significance of those words. Let's go to Deuteronomy 18.15. This is Moses speaking, just as he's preparing the people to go into the promised land. Says the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. You see, Moses knew that he wasn't it, that the law wasn't it, that something, someone much greater was coming says, God will raise up this person, and you must listen to him. And then here on this mountain, God himself has spoken to Peter, James, and John, and said, Jesus is my beloved son. You must listen to him. You see, in Proverbs, it's uh, chapter 3, verse 5, I think, it says, do not lean on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord with all of your heart." We should use our minds, we should try to work things out, we should try to understand, but we don't make that the foundation of our life. We want to recognize the limits of our understanding. Above all else, we need to put our trust in Jesus. We need to listen to Him. He is a faithful shepherd. When we bow down and put our trust in Him, even if we don't understand what's happening in our lives, we have no idea what direction to go in, we find that He is faithful. I have found that He is faithful. At times when I don't know what to do, When I don't understand and don't like the situation, time and time again, I just feel Jesus calling me, just trust in me. Just listen to me. Let me guide you and lead you. Because our God, our Jesus is a faithful shepherd. Let's stand and pray. Lord God, Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you that you're so much wiser than we are, so much better than we are. We thank you that you knew that going to the cross was essential, you knew what you were doing, you knew what you were going to do, and you did all that for us. Thank you that you defeated sin, death, and the devil. And thank you that we can trust you completely. Even during the times when we don't understand, perhaps especially during the times when we don't understand. Thank you that you've called us to yourself. Thank you that you've put your arms around us, Lord. Lord, may we walk faithfully with you. Please enable us to do that. We thank you for your victory. And may you help us to bring your victory into this city. In Jesus' name, amen.